our sermon, which uh, can be found on the screen. Uh, it's Mark 10, 35 through 45. Uh, and the sermon is titled, Who is the Greatest? So let's begin. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to him, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Well, I'm sure you all celebrated it. It was this week. It's a national holiday after all. I'm talking about National Opposite Day, which happens every January 25th. But you already know that. Of course, we know what National Opposite Day is. It's where everything is the opposite of what you say it is. I think this is kids' favorite holiday, by the way, aside from Christmas. You know, you could say, I love to do the dishes, which of course means I hate to do the dishes. Or broccoli is my favorite food. Or I did my homework. Of course, it's the opposite. I love opposite day myself uh, and declare just about every day opposite day. But the reality is opposite day itself is a paradox, is it not? Because in declaring opposite day, is it not a normal day because the opposite of opposite day is a normal day and therefore no such thing as opposite day exists. Now I wouldn't be bringing this up aside from the fact that you're a very intelligent congregation so I'm sure you're tracking with what I just said. Now why am I talking about opposite day? I'm talking about it because Jesus declares that the kingdom of God is opposite day from the world. Listen to what he says when he talks about things like being great and being first. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus even demonstrates this oppositeness of the kingdom of God in his own life. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. The disciples don't get it. And I'm not sure that we do most of the time. We measure greatness and prestige and power and title. But Jesus wants to teach us a lesson on what true greatness is. And more than that, he wants to free us from always having to be first, to live a life of always straining and striving to get to the top of the heap. How can we live in this way that Jesus commands us to? It's quite simple. God's grace frees us 
to live kingdom-centered lives, not self-centered lives. It's the grace of Jesus Christ moving in our hearts, which changes our outlook, which adjusts our behavior. The point of this sermon is quite simple. Because I have found glory in Jesus, I can give my life away to people. We're going to look at three points as we unpack that statement. Number one, our need for glory. There's a need in us. We have to have it. Why is that? Number two, the glory that comes from grace. There is a true glory that we can have from the grace of Jesus Christ. And number three, glorious living. How do we live out this glory that we have in Jesus Christ? Because I have found glory in Jesus, I can give my life away to people. Well, let's begin with point number one, our need for glory. We see, starting off in verse 35, and James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Kind of a bold, blanket statement. And Jesus responds, What do you want me to do? And they said, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, where did they get the idea to even ask for such a thing? It actually, there's a parallel story. We're in Mark 10, 35 through 45, but this story is paralleled in Matthew uh, 19, uh, Matthew 20, actually. And in Matthew 19, Peter says to Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 tr thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is painting a picture of what's going to ultimately happen with these disciples, and it's in their minds. They're thinking about it, that they're going to have these positions of glory and power in the new world. But Jesus goes on, and Jesus talks about what's going to happen to him. In fact, it's, he says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And the very next thing that they ask after Jesus says is this, we want you to do something for us. Now why are they asking now? I mean, Jesus has just said that he's gonna be delivered over and he's gonna be crucified, and the first thing on their mind is not we are so sad for you, Jesus. We are in mourning for you that this is going to happen, but rather grant us, James and John saying, to be on your right and, on, and your left. It's like they're fixated on that and not on the reality about what is to occur. What is it that James and John want? It's glory. What is the definition of glory? It's very great praise honor or distinction bestowed by common consent, renown. What they want is glory. And how they think that they get it is through position and power. Well, what about the other 10? Are they thinking of the other 10 disciples as they ask this? And the answer is no. They have no problem walking over the other 10 or or trying to be first and stepping over the 10 in order of doing so. They don't even care about what's going to happen to Jesus. All they care about is glory. Why do they have this lust for glory? Why do we? 
The answer is quite simple. We need it. See, this desire for glory in itself is not a bad thing. We were made for glory because we were made in the image of God to rule over the entire earth. We were made in the glorious image of God. And so mankind was brought into the world by God experiencing complete satisfaction, complete honor and renown because God himself, his creator, saw him as perfect in his own sight. So built into the DNA of every single one of us is this desire, this need for glory. We were not made to be constantly empty, constantly seeking adulation and validation from things or people. I mean, think about this. Have you ever wondered why we care so much about how we look or obsess over our golf scores or why we hurt so badly when we're publicly embarrassed or why we become so despondent when we're rejected by those that we care about. It's because we are losing something. We've lost something. It's glory. The Christian philosopher Peter Kreef put it this way. We believe as if we remember Eden and can't recapture it. Like kings and queens dressed up in rags who are wandering the world in search of their thrones. If they had never reigned, if we had never reigned, why would we seek a throne? If we had always been beggars, why would we be discontent? And so we, each one of us, roam the world searching for glory, trying to find it in things and others. See, the disciples craving for glory by asking this question shows that they don't have it. And they're willing to step over the other 10 and Jesus to get it if they need it. It's like oxygen. And they think that the kingdom of God is like the world. That the influential and the glorious are those in the greatest seats of power. And to gain glory, you have to take it from others. In fact, Jesus himself explains that this is how the world works in Mark 10, 42. He said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. This phrase, lord, lord it over them, in the Greek means play the tyrant. They're tyrants over one another when they get their position of glory. That's how they get it, by taking it. Now, the disciples are none too happy when they hear what's going on. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, why were the ten indignant at James and John? Is it because of what James and John had asked? Or maybe it's because they hadn't thought to think of it first themselves. See, in another place in the scriptures, we see all of them arguing over who was going to be the, uh, considered the greatest. Now, it's easy to think that the kingdom of God is like the world. It's easy to take the world and bring it into the church. What's most important is to get my way, my way above everyone else's way. And the influential people in the church are just like those in the world, those who are wealthy and intelligent 
and beautiful. In fact, it's easy to think that the way that the church gains influence in the world is just like the world. A better presentation, a better building, better music, better coffee. But in reality, what we're doing is thinking this, that when the church looks better, we look better. It's all about us. And Jesus is saying to the disciples and to us, you've got it all wrong. You're looking for glory in all the wrong places. It's not bad that you're seeking glory, but you're seeking it in places that you'll never find it. Because you won't find it in a position or place or possessions. It'll always leave you empty. I remember as a teenager, I'd started playing tennis and I wanted this particular tennis racket. It was really expensive and it was one of those things where maybe a Christmas or a birthday gift and I used to fantasize about getting this tennis racket. Because when I got that tennis racket, I believed that I would be somebody. I could realize my dream of being a great tennis player and receiving great adulation and glory and fame from all of my contemporaries because of how good I was. We know, of course, how this story ends. That thing can't give me glory, can it? Because it was just a piece of graphite. It was just a, a tennis racket. And when I got it, I was inevitably disappointed because I sought glory in a thing that couldn't give me glory because it wasn't alive. See, after our fall from glory, we see all of life from a temporal perspective and find all of our hope for satisfaction in temporal things. We go from garbage heap to garbage heap, toy to toy, fix to fix, and relationship to relationship in search of glory. And counterfeit glory becomes a narcotic. The more we get, the more we need. And the more we need, the more dissatisfied we become. And the more dissatisfied we become, the greater extremes we will pursue to continue our search. The disciples wanted counterfeit glory, and Jesus would not give it to them. My friends, we must have glory. This is not a bad desire in itself. But we must recognize that trying to find glory in this world is a dead end. So see in yourself the truth that I was meant to be glorious, that I need glory, but that I will not be able to find it in this world. Where are you going to get it right now? Is it your job where you seek the crown of glory? Is it the crowd, the shout of the crowd and the adulation? Is it the computer? Is it another person? No, we need something better. Which leads me to my second point. We need the glory that comes from grace. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What is Jesus talking about? We see 
in other places in the scripture where he talks about this cup that he's going to drink. Remember the Garden of Gethsemane where he turns to God and says, Oh God, Father, please take this cup from me. I don't want to drink it. He's talking about his death. He's talking about his sacrifice on the cross. In the Old Testament, the cup is almost always the re reference as the cup of God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17 says, Wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. The baptism and cup that Jesus is going to undergo is a cup of suffering and death. And when you think about it, it's the opposite of the glory that's due to him. I mean, if anyone is due glory, it's Jesus Christ, right? The Son of God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who is all-glorious and all-powerful. And yet he is going to suffer and die. It's the opposite of the glory that's due him. Why is he undergoing this? Why is this happening to us? We see that he is drinking this cup, not for himself, not because of what he's done, but rather for us. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This word ransom in the Greek is the purchase price that you would pay to redeem a slave. If you wanted to set a slave free, you would have to pay a ransom price. And whatever that price was, it was called the ransom. Jesus is saying, I'm coming. Even though I'm due all the glory in the world, I'm coming not to be served, but to serve and to ransom you from the slavery of death and sin. See, the curse that is placed upon us is because we have all sinned. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice that we all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we don't deserve God's glory. It's the curse that is placed upon us that brings shame into our life. The psychology experts will tell us that your issue is that you have a self-esteem problem. But that's not the issue at all. In fact, we think far highly, more highly of ourselves than we should. We're not worthy of the glory of God. Indeed, it says the wages of our sin is death. But Christ has come into the world to bestow glory on us by taking punishment for our shame. Hebrews 12, 2 puts it this way. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. See, the cross is what we were supposed to end up on. The cross was the proper and fitting end for all of us who have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But instead, in a role reversal, Christ bestows his glory on us by taking the punishment and relieving us of our shame. 
Romans 4.25 put it this way. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, because, and I'm speaking to you if you are a believer, a follower of Christ, because you have trusted in Jesus Christ and in his death, how he sees you and me is perfect. He bestows his glory upon us. He sees us as not having sin, as worthy of honor and fame and adulation. Indeed, he bestows on us the birthright as children of God, that we are contemporaries of Jesus Christ and can also be called sons and daughters of the living God. The result is that we have peace. No more striving. No more constantly grasping anymore. It's only by grace. We can't earn it, you see. The disciples are thinking they can undergo the same baptism that Jesus is undergoing, but they can't. It's only through grace, by faith, that we can be saved. And it's only through grace that we receive this glory. I have in my, uh, in my briefcase my passport, uh, just in case the customs officials come and I have to run. I always carry it with me. No, I actually brought it, but I forgot to grab it. But the passport, a United States passport, is one of the most coveted things in the world. It gives me all the rights and privileges of a citizen of the United States. Many have stood in harm's way and died in order that I might be free. And all of the rights and privileges that are bestowed are bestowed because of my identity, who I am, that that passport indicates. In the same way, we have a Christian passport, but it's not a document. It's not a creed. It's a person. Christ is our living passport because in him I am forgiven. I am righteous. I am justified. In him, the Father sees me as perfect. And in him, he bestows on me a blessing and not a curse. Because of Christ, God the Father is for me and he adopts me. And my search for glory is over. Are you still trying to find glory here? Trying to find worth? Trying to find satisfaction? Because it's only when we're glorious, restored to who we were meant to be, that we will be satisfied. There's only one place you can find it, and it's in Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But his blood is enough to restore to you the glory that you are so desperately searching for. So end your search. If you're a Christian, stop looking to the world for validation. This is how you experience the glory that is already yours. 
It's two things. It's really simple. Number one, recognize and renounce all counterfeit glories, declaring them insufficient to satisfy you. Renounce the things that you're chasing and looking for to gain glory from because you never will. And then number two, place our only hope for satisfaction in him. Place all of that longing and that need for glory and completeness in him. For that's exactly what he wants to give to us. If you, have, if you are not a Christian, if you have not yet become a follower of Jesus Christ, this should be the best message that you've ever heard because your search for glory is over. But it's only when you recognize and renounce all counterfeit glories and you place all of your hope for satisfaction only in Jesus Christ. Because I have found my glory in Jesus Christ, I can live different. That brings me to my final point, glorious living. I can give my life away. See, that's why the kingdom is different. That's why Jesus can say things like, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Jesus, through his grace, gives us a radical new way to live. Since we already have the glory that we're searching for in Christ Jesus, we don't have to be first. We can serve. We can give our lives away as Jesus demonstrated. See, this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is radically different from the world in that all in it will be satisfied with the glory bestowed on them. Romans 6.4 put it this way, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. See, my friends, we are called to be radically different. Since Christ is in us, we can live by his Holy Spirit, following in the footsteps of Christ, acting like him. And so we can live this life that Christ is calling us to, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. I can be last with you, Because with God, I'm first. I don't have to live a life of pushing and shoving, but instead can live a life of serving and loving. This is God's vision for Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And how do you think the world will react when they see a group of people living opposite day of the world, serving, giving their lives away, not jumping over one another to be first. So what about me? What about you? When grace gets you, you don't have to be first. So what's your heart? Place all of your trust and your hopes for glory, for that is a good desire on Jesus Christ. Renounce the world and you will become great for God. Because you become great for God when greatness is not your God. Because you and I have found glory in Jesus Christ, 
we can give our lives away to one another and to the world. We can live out what Jesus is saying here. We can be last and we can be servant of all. This is the life that God is calling us to. Find your satisfaction in him and him alone. Because we have found our glory in Jesus, we can and will give our life away to others. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that the search for glory is over. That in you, Jesus Christ, I have all the fame and adulation I need. That I can be satisfied. I don't have to live a life of constantly yearning and searching and giving myself to things that cannot satisfy me. I pray for every single person in this room that we would renounce and recognize and renounce the things that we are giving our hearts to in hopes of glory. And instead, we would put our hope for satisfaction and your glory squarely on you and become satisfied in you and thus giving ourselves away to one another. Let this be our vision and the vision of Redeemer Presbyterian. Pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.